Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, the Lord Jesus is coming back. We thank you that he will uh, judge all the nations and save your people. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to your word now, uh, that you will be preparing us for that day, that your spirit be working in our hearts, causing us to respond rightly to him, uh, so that on that day we will stand as your redeemed people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do have a seat. Uh, can you please turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3? Habakkuk chapter 3. As we uh, wind up our series on the book of Habakkuk, next week we're going to start a new series looking at selected psalms, uh, the four psalms before Christmas. Habakkuk chapter 3 is on page 950 of the Church Bibles. It be helpful to have that open in front of you. Uh, and also, as you came in, you would have got an outline, uh, two handouts. One of the handouts has got the words for all the songs. The other handout has got an outline in the middle of where we're going this morning in the sermon. So it would be helpful to have that with you as well. Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, God is never politically correct, is he? Because he doesn't have to be, does he? He's God. And his word is not always politically correct, is it? Because it doesn't have to be. It is the word of God. Far higher than the ebbs and flows of our culture, in which something is acceptable in one generation, only to be looked at with horror on the next, and something which is rejected in one generation, only to be embraced by the next. In the Bible, there are many pictures that God gives us of himself, to help us understand who he is and what he's like. Now, some of those pictures are very popular. Uh, for example, there's a picture of God as a shepherd. You find that in the Old Testament. God cares for Israel. You find that in the New, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so we, it's, a good, it's a good image. It's a biblical picture. It is therefore God-sanctioned one. We hear about it often. We sing about it. But there are other pictures that God gives us himself that are just as good, just as biblical, just as God-sanctioned, and yet we rarely hear about them. We rarely sing about them. We rarely talk about them. And yet we know that we actually need to hold all the pictures that God gives us together so that we can know him without the distortion that just one picture gives and the picture that the Holy Spirit paints for us in our passage today is a terrifying picture of God, the divine warrior. You may recall where we're up to in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk had complained to God about all the injustice that was happening in, among his people. He could not understand why God put up with it, didn't seem to be listening to him when he complained about it. And then remember, God answered Habakkuk's complaint. He indeed was going to judge his people, was going to bring in the Babylonians. Their armies would sweep in and destroy the nation of Judah. Then Habakkuk was upset with God because of that. The Babylonians themselves are so cruel and wicked that how could you use them to destroy your people? Those oh, people of Judah are bad enough. These, these Babylonians are worse. 
once again, God responded to Habakkuk's complaint. He was keeping Tabitha on Babylon as well. For though he is sovereign, people are still responsible for their actions. And he would judge Babylon with justice too. Their sin would come back on their own heads. Having understood that, the book of Habakkuk ends with this prayer, that is chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, titles it, A Prayer of Habakkuk, the Prophet, According to Shigionov. Now, the prayer is like a psalm, when you read it, and we don't really know what Shigionov is. Right? Though we know it's not a breed of dog, or some kind of woolly mammoth, Alright, sounds like it ought to be, doesn't it, from the name? Um, it's probably got something to do with the musical setting. That, and the bit at the end of the chapter, right at the end it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, means that this prayer was meant to be sung. That is, it's a prayer of Habakkuk, but it's also a prayer that was used by God's people later to sing to him. Right, maybe one of our musicians can put it to song uh, sometime. Now, Habakkuk starts off this prayer really by stating the main point behind it. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk had heard of God's work in the past, he had heard how he had fought for his people and once again he is asking God to work for his people in the future. Remember he knows that God is angry about sin and the injustice in Judah and that God is going to punish He's He's accepted that. But he asked God at the end of verse 2 that in the midst of wrath he should remember mercy. That ultimately he would save his people once again. We'll come back to this bit of prayer at the end. Now what is this work of God that Habakkuk has heard about? Well, he describes it for us poetically in a typical Hebrew style. He looks back to the definitive work of God in Israel's history, the time of the Exodus. When God rescued his people, this was about a thousand years beforehand. After God had freed his people from slavery in Egypt, he met with his people at Mount Sinai. To give them the law. And there on the mountain was fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and thick cloud. Well, in this picture, Habakkuk pictures God coming from Sinai. It's as if if he was in the land. And God was at Sinai and he was coming on his way, coming with his people, heading to the promised land. And so he uses the word Taman and Mount Paran, which were places in the south, to signify the direction that God would be coming from when he came to the land from Sinai. So there you are in the land, and Habakkuk remembers these events of, of long ago. Verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One came from Mount Paran. But he wasn't, but, but, but this, this one who was coming, he wasn't just a, a tribal God, a domestic God. No, no, no. Verse 3. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. 
See, the God who was bringing Israel from Sinai to the promised land, He was the God who ruled the heavens and the earth. His glory, His splendor, His majesty fills the universe. Verse 4, His brightness was like the light. Ray flashed from His hand. A picture is pictures like the sun, isn't it? Absolute brilliance that we can't approach. And yet, with dazzling rays that stream forth His glory over all the world. Back at Sinai, He was shown to be so great that the people were terrified. But actually, He was far, far greater than that. Because verse 4 continues, And there He veiled His power. Isn't that interesting? God is so bright, so brilliant, so glorious that that He has to veil Himself to be seen. And this God Almighty is moving towards the promised land and He's got His agents of judgment with Him. They're described poetically like His minders, like His bodyguards. You know when there's a VVIP that goes out? He's got all these bodyguards, right? In dark suits and dark glasses. Some walk behind, some walk in front. You want to try and be funny with the, the, the VIP, the VVIP, then you know the bodyguards will come and you know escort you away. Well, verse five. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. See, these bodyguards they'd been seen before, hadn't they? In Egypt. Part of the way God rescued his people was setting these guards on them, the Egyptians. By bringing judgment against the Egyptians who enslaved them. And part of God's judgment had been plagued. After they come out, while they were there at Mount Sinai, God used plague to punish his own people for making and worshipping a golden calf. Plague and pestilence were under his command. And remember when God revealed himself at Sinai, there was was earthquake. The whole mountain trembled greatly when the Lord descended upon it, Exodus says. And now God was leading his people to the promised land. And and verse 6 picks up the the, the journey poetically. He stood and measured the earth. Measured could also be translated as shook. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The heavenly hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. See the hills and the mountains, they seemed eternal to the people of the time. but, But God is the eternal one. They're no match for him. And he would even shake and move the mountains to clear the way for his people. Great, isn't it, when God is on your side? But it is very threatening when He's not. And it's not just the mountains that trembled. The people who lived on the way from Sinai to the Promised Land, they were scared. They had heard the reports of what God had done to the Egyptians. And in verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Because this glorious, awesome, powerful, terrifying God was coming towards them. Mountains tremble. The people tremble. The face of the living God. In verse 3 to 7, Habakkuk has been talking about God. But in the next few verses, Habakkuk turns once again to talk to God. And to acknowledge to God how awesome he really is. And as Habakkuk is in prayer, he paints that picture which we talked about earlier, the picture of the divine warrior. Look at the imagery of the next few verses. God rides on his horse and chariot in verse 8. 
the end of verse 8. He's got a bow and arrow in verse 9. Spear in verse 11. God is a divine warrior. But what is he fighting for? What is his cause? Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? In the poetry, it's as if God is a conqueror of the waters. Perhaps like, you know, when he parted the Red Sea or stopped the flow of the Jordan so his people can go through. Was it because he was angry with the waters themselves, Habakkuk asks? Surely not. So we don't know why God is fighting at this stage. Though a fighter he is. Verse 9, you strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, all ready to go. And then he does. You split the earth with rivers. Bang! The world is divided as water flows between nations. And then bang! Verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. And then bang! The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Remember in creation God separated the waters to create dry land and now this poetry is bringing waters back. It's undoing creation to an extent. As creator he can. And the rest of creation is scared of him as well. Look at verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place as the lightning of your arrow, at the lightning of your arrows as they spread, at the flash of your glittering spear. See, God is so great, the great warrior shoots his arrows and flashes his spear. Even the sun and the moon no longer dare to move. God is angry. And when the divine warrior is angry, it is not just the mountains and hills that tremble, even the heavenly bodies are terrified. But is God really angry with the waters and the mountains and the heavenly bodies? Surely not. Habakkuk doesn't say that he is. But if not, then why is he doing all this? Why this poetic imagery here? Well, the answer is the next few verses. Verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. God's anger is not directed at the creation, but rather at the nations. And so the divine warrior is wrecking havoc on creation in order to attack the nations. It's like, it's like Jack Bauer or James Bond or whoever it is your hero is. You know, they smash up the lights and they blow up the building, rooms in the buildings and then, you know, hurt the seat, whatever, not to get at the building, but to get the baddies who are in the building. Does that make sense? Well, the ultimate reason for God's action, the fact that he's furious, the fact that he's out there fighting, is because he's mad with the nations and because he loves his people. Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed. You see, this wasn't just a let me show you how great and strong I am exercise. It wasn't just a temper tantrum. God was acting to save his people. He was going to rescue his children. He was going to save his anointed. Come back to that phrase later. Salvation was his goal. And so to save his people, he lead up the bad guys. Continuing verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, 
For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, with the surging of many waters. God, the Mighty One, had done this in the past, hadn't he? At the time of the Exodus, he used all kinds of means to hit at Pharaoh. He inflicted him in the Egyptian nation with blood in the Nile, a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies, a plague of the livestock, a plague of boils with hail and locusts and darkness and there was no sunshine. Killed all the firstborn sons of Egypt in order to save his people. And finally, when the Egyptian army chased the escaping Israelites, God, the mighty warrior, drowned them all and their horses in the surge of the waters of the Red Sea. God had acted in his wrath to save his people. He is so big, so awesome, so powerful that you don't want to get on the wrong side of him. And the Egyptians, by oppressing his people, did. But now, in Habakkuk's day, a thousand years later, Judah, God's people, were themselves facing the wrath of the divine warrior because of their own injustice and unfaithfulness. Remember, God said the Babylonians would come against them. That was scary enough when we read about that two weeks ago. But I tell you, friends, it is even more scary that God, the divine warrior, was coming against them. And so, like the Midianites and the Cushites of old, Habakkuk was terrified. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble within me. Friends, would it not be awful to have God against you? To be waiting for his judgment. To be facing his punishment. To be a man or a woman who knows of the divine warrior and is on the wrong side of him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Habakkuk was part of a nation that was facing the divine warrior he had heard of. And he was terrified. And yet Habakkuk also remembers what God had said earlier in the book. Yes, the Babylonians would be used by God to punish Israel, but God would also punish the Babylonians for what they would do. And that was the glimmer of hope that Habakkuk held on to. That one day, the divine warrior would turn against the Babylonians. And so he says at the end of verse 16, Yet I wait for the day, I quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. 
For on that day, the divine warrior would once again be fighting on the side of his people. But for now, the divine warrior would turn his wrath on his disobedient people. And the result of that, well, that is pictured in verse 17. The imagery is telling. There's a fig tree, but it does not blossom. There are vines, but they're giving no grace. There should be fruit. The olive is meant to be producing olives, but, but it fails. The, har- the fields are meant to be producing harvest, but, but, but there is none there. Even the cattle are not in their fold. There's no herd in the stalls. No food. No sustenance. Therefore, there will soon be no life. The picture is one of curse, starvation, failure, impending death. And you know, back in Deuteronomy, God actually said this would happen. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God was bringing his people into the promised land, he gave them warnings. Warnings that were actually part of the covenant that he was making with them. If they obeyed him in the land, he was giving them, he would bless them abundantly in the land. If they disobeyed, he would curse them. This is God's covenant with Israel in the land, not to be confused with what's happening today. But here are the curses from Deuteronomy 28 that God would bring to the people of Israel in the land when they disobeyed him. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. We know now that's Babylon, isn't it? That time they didn't know anything about Babylon. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. Does that sound familiar? You see what Habakkuk is getting this, this, this stuff from? They shall besiege you in all your towns, until your high and fortified walls in which you trust have come down through all your land, they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout the land which the Lord your God has given you. You see, nearly a thousand years before, God had said this would happen if they disobeyed him. And Habakkuk had recognized that this nation in the ancient prophecy was the same nation that God had spoken to him about back in chapter 1. So what does Habakkuk expect? He expects all these curses to come true. He expects the grain and oil and herd and flock to be missing. He expects the divine warrior to come against the nation. Not just from his prophecy, but from the covenant with Moses way back then. And yet in the midst of this disaster, he has hope. From verse 17 again, in chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet, yet, 
will I rejoice in the Lord. Yet will I, how could he rejoice in that situation? How can, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God who rescues. You see, Habakkuk knows God's word. And Moses, way back in Deuteronomy, had written about the judgment that we see there. But he also says something about after the judgment. God's going to do something else. After all the blessings and curses, God's going to do this. And this is in Deuteronomy 30, two chapters later. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on the foes and enemies who persecuted you and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commands that I command you today. There is hope. Habakkuk can rejoice in the midst of curses because of God's promises. He realizes that even when God is bringing his punishment, he is doing that because he is faithful to his promise. And the God who is faithful to his promise to judge will also be faithful to his promise to save. Which is why, in the end, Habakkuk can endure the judgment to come. Remember, he's a good man. He's distressed by the evil of the day that he cries out to God for justice, yet he himself is part of the nation that will face the terrible judgment that he asks for. And if he is alive at the time, he'll be part of that nation which will face the horror of the Babylonian army and the divine warrior. But in the midst of it, he can rejoice that God is his salvation. He will trust God to save him in the end. And he will trust God to save his people in the end. And so the book of Habakkuk ends on a positive note in verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me trend on my high places. Once again, we've got to look at the older part of the Old Testament to see what this means. What is he saying? And when we do, we actually realize that this verse contains a hint of what is to come because it actually recalls what David had written about 400 years beforehand in Psalm 18, verse 33. He says, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. And the interesting thing is if you go to Psalm 18... The psalm has also been painting a picture of God as a divine warrior. But from verse 18 onwards, it is actually King David who becomes the divine warrior, mirroring God. That's why he says this. So what's going on here? Is Habakkuk going to be a divine warrior as well? Or is he pointing to Psalm 18 because it's David, or rather the son of David, to whom David points, who will be the divine warrior who saves God's people in the end. Bit of a mystery at this stage, but it's a pregnant one. Look how far Habakkuk has come in the last three chapters. Chapter 1, he is questioning God. How long, O Lord, will you will I cry for help and 
and you are crying for justice and you just ignore it. In chapter 2, he's questioning God. How can, oh God, how can you use the wicked Babylonians to punish your people? But now he knows that God is just. He knows that God acts to judge the world and save his people. Habakkuk is no longer doubting God's justice or his goodness. At one level, he is still terrified. He is. But in the midst of that, he is joyfully skipping with confidence and security. Habakkuk had prayed back in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the reports of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. His prayer is that God would once again, just like in the Exodus, come and save his people. That God would do what he had said in Deuteronomy and bring about a new beginning. That the divine warrior would once again fight for his people. And so he says in verse 16, I will wait quietly for it. He says in verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord, even in the midst of disaster. And he says in verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. For he is confident that his prayer will be answered. In wrath, God will remember mercy. And once again, as in the Exodus, God would revive his work among his people. Well, was Habakkuk's prayer answered? Did God come once again as a divine warrior to save his people? To bring about a new Exodus? To circumcise their hearts? Give them to keeping God's law? History tells us that the Babylonians invaded Judah in 587 and 597 BC. They did what God predicted in Habakkuk 1. History also tells us that Babylon was invaded in 539 BC. The armies of Cyrus the Great diverted a river that was flowing through the city and then they marched in on the dry riverbed. Very clever, wasn't it? The Israelites who were in captivity were allowed to go home. God had rescued his people. But that rescue was, was only a foretaste of what is to come. The big action of the divine warrior, the great revival of God's mighty work, was not fulfilled. It wasn't like the Exodus. God's people were not given circumcised hearts to obey him. The splendor of God's greatness was not seen. The action of God on the elements was not felt. God's people were brought back, but in a small and bitsy way. It was not like the Exodus. But, there was an incident in Israel's future where the rescue of the Exodus would not only be revived, it would be surpassed. A definitive event to which the exodus would be just a pointer, really. When the divine warrior would once again make his arm bare and come out fighting for his people. In the life, death, resurrection, 
ascension and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the glory of God is both hidden and revealed. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And yet, it is veiled. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 tells us that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. They do not see God's greatness there. As Jesus walked this earth, plague and pestilence were at His command. Sure, he chose to rein them in rather than telling them to spread, but, but he did control them, didn't he? Didn't he? The divine warrior had authority over sickness of every sort. As Jesus walked this earth, he showed his authority over nature. Sure, he chose to calm the storm rather than stir it up, but he did control it. The divine warrior had authority over the waters. And as Jesus walked this earth, he left his real enemies trembling. The evil spirits cried out, What are you doing with us, Jesus? Now there's any come destroy us? To know who you are, the Holy One of God. Like Father, like Son. The divine warrior. Both as God the Son, like his Father, and the Son of God, the Davidic King, the fulfillment of Psalm 18. The fulfillment of Habakkuk's plea came in his death and his resurrection. For there indeed God revived his work. There indeed he brought about the new exodus. Luke talks about it that way. He says that Jesus and his transfiguration were talking to Moses and Elijah about the exodus that he was going to bring in. Because it is there where he rescued his people and made them his own. He saved them not just from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but from, from sin and Satan, the far greater enemies. It was there that God poured out his wrath and sin was punished. Your sin, my sin, the sin of every believer was laid on Jesus. All our sins borne by him when he died under God's anger for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. And in God's wrath on his Son, he showed mercy to us. And think about when Jesus died. Darkness covered the land, the sun was not seen. There was indeed an earthquake. The mountain, Mount Zion, trembled. Habakkuk's poetry broke into reality. For in the death of Jesus, all the forces of evil were defeated. What they had on us was our guilt. But with Jesus taking our guilt away, they're completely disarmed, laid bare, exposed, crushed. As the Holy Spirit says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them at the cross. And so in his death, Jesus defeated the devil. Long, long ago, when sin first came into the world, God had promised that one born of a woman would crush the serpent's head while the serpent crushed his heel. And Jesus crushed Satan on the cross while Satan crushed his heel. 
And Jesus' victory over sin and death was shown in his resurrection. God rescued his anointed one. Raised him from the dead. Seated him at his right hand, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion in this age and in the age to come. Ephesians 1.21 And this Jesus, this triumphant warrior, will one day return to pour out his wrath on this world and to save his people. Remember that vision of Jesus that God gave John in Revelation 19, our New Testament reading today? saw heaven open behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true in righteousness he judges and makes war that's a picture of Jesus his eyes are like a flame of fire on his head are many diadems crowns he has a name written that no one knows but himself he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God John chapter 1 verse 1 and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh he has a name written. The King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And as you recall, the passage goes on to show Jesus utterly defeating Satan and all his allies, human and spiritual. And the victory won at the cross is enforced. Jesus is the divine warrior who will finally destroy the work of the devil. And as he pours out his wrath, there would also be salvation for his people. In wrath, he will remember mercy. And as God's children, we too share the family likeness of in, in Christ, the divine warrior imagery applies to us as well. Though it's not actually us as the real warrior. Remember Ephesians 6? A passage about the armor of God. It tells us to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. We don't have time to look at that passage now, but when you look at it in its context, it's really about applying and proclaiming the gospel. And as we do that, we look forward to the time where we enjoy the fullness of the victory. Look forward to the day when Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so we join with Jesus in his serpent-crushing work. But remember in Habakkuk, why God the divine warrior did the things that he did. Remember why he came in wrath upon the nature and the nations? It wasn't because he was angry with the waters. But he did it to save his people. And you know, brothers and sisters, God's action in Jesus, that bigger action to which the Exodus points, was really to save us. Yes, we know that ultimately it's to glorify his name, that's the point of everything. But God did do it to save us. The divine warrior stirred himself to destroy the devil and rescue his people. And by his wrath poured out on his son, he has shown mercy to us, for which we are eternally grateful. For the picture of God the divine warrior is an awesome and fearful picture.
unless you know that the divine warrior is fighting on your side. But if we know that God is on our side, or better, if we know that we are on God's side, then we can have the same kind of confidence that Habakkuk did. For as Habakkuk lived in a nation under curse, we live in a world under curse. We live in a world where disaster often strikes. And even righteous people get caught up in it. As Habakkuk would have got caught up. And he lived in the disaster of Israel. There will be times in our lives when it looks like or feels like everything is unraveling. When finances crash, when relationships go sour, when nothing seems to go right, when we face illness, when we face danger, when we face persecution, when we face death. It may not be specific punishment for us. It may just be that we live in a world under curse like Habakkuk lived in a nation under curse. And like Habakkuk going through it all, it may well be a terrifying experience. But like Habakkuk, we can face it with an underlying confidence. Because like Habakkuk, we know what's on the other side. The divine warrior who fought for us in the past so clearly at the cross will once again fight on our behalf. And when Jesus returns, he will put all wrongs right. He will pour out his wrath on the nations and rescue those who belong to him. And in the end, he will bring us to the promised land where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And so in the midst of disaster, we too can rejoice. We can sing this prayer with Habakkuk and with all the people of God. We can sing of God's power. We can sing of God's salvation. And we can even sing of God's wrath. Because in His wrath, He shows us mercy. The divine warrior saves His people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the different pictures that you have given us of yourself in the Bible. And we thank you today for that picture that you have given us of yourself as, as a divine warrior. Lord, we know that you are indeed our awesome and great and brilliant and fearful. Help us to live with an appropriate fear of you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that because we are in Jesus, because we have been saved by your great action in the past, we do not need to live in a cowering kind of fear. Because we know that whatever happens, you are with us. And if we are on your side, then the divine warrior fights for us. And that is a great comfort, Lord. 
We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would indeed be on your side. We pray that each of us here would be people who are submitting to you as our Lord and trusting in your Son as our Saviour. Pray that you help us to remember who you are. Remember how great and awesome you are. To remember your work in the past and your promises for the future. And so trust you in the present. Even when things aren't going our way. Help us to have a big picture of you, not a small one. Help us to always be mindful of your majesty and your greatness, which you have shown in history and ultimately at the cross. Keep us looking forward to the future when the Lord Jesus returns. And may we be ready to meet with him. We ask this in his name. Amen.